0: Morning. We're reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. That's Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as a light in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering for your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. from the back. Sorry. I want to first say uh, welcome to those of you who visit with us. I have not had the opportunity to really uh, interact with many of you because of our dismissal policies and and our uh, social distancing. Since I sit up here, I get to be the last one to leave. Hopefully, Hopefully, the first shall be last policy applies to that in the long run, too. But I have not gotten to meet a lot of those of you who, who visit with us. We're grateful you still choose to come worship with us in person. I know we are lower on numbers today, but we do have a significant portion that are gone on a trip this week, and our prayers are with them for their safety as they return. Uh, but we're grateful for those of you who worship with us online as well, uh, for taking the time out to be a part of our, our service, and those who are downstairs in the fellowship hall, we're grateful you're here as well, and, and I'm sorry I can't come down there and and, and catch up with all of you before uh, our time runs out. Tonight, uh, we've been doing our minister's Bible study at six o'clock on, on Sunday nights. Well, two of our ministers are not here, so we're not going to have a minister's Bible study. Instead, what we're going to have is a virtual prayer night. Now, before uh, COVID-19 quarantined us months ago, we would, were doing a prayer night Every other month. And we have a, a theme that night, have several prayers, some songs, some scripture readings. We're essentially going to have the same thing tonight. It's just all going to be online. We have, a, we have some men who have, have led are leading us in prayer tonight. We have a few songs that we'll have on the screen as well to sing along with and a, and a couple of scripture readings. So please join us tonight at 6 o'clock. It is going to be a COVID-19 themed prayer night. So please join us for that tonight at 6 o'clock online on our website. We are in the midst of this series on the book of Philippians and now we come to this section between verses 12 through 18 and the whole focus of our series has been on finding joy and we're picking out uh, these things that Paul says and trying to discover how we can find joy in some of the aspects of life that are not always that joyful. And I've come to determine that that there are two types of people in the world. There are those types of people that love to exercise, and then there are normal people. (laughs) Now, you can tell by my physique that I'm one of those that loves to exercise, right? Not at all. I I do not enjoy exercise. I'm normal, right? I I say that in jest. But there are some people who, who really... Enjoy a good workout. And there are some people who dread working out. Now that doesn't mean they won't work out. That may mean that they, they do it because they know it's good for them. But there are some who enjoy it, some who don't. You know and I, I don't think that just applies to physical working out. I think that can apply to working out your mind, and especially as we're going to talk about today, working out your spirit. See, in this section of Philippians that we're focusing on today, Paul talks about working out. Of course, he's not talking about physical exercise. He's ultimately talking about spiritual exercise. But look again at this text, Philippians chapter 2, particularly in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul calls on us to work out. Our salvation. Now to be fair, the Greek word that's employed here does not specifically refer to exercise. But the Greek word that's being used here, it does refer to activities that bring about, produce, or create some sort of result. And when we think about exercise, we do think about results. I mean that's why we work out is to produce results. Maybe it's to improve our health. Maybe it's to lose weight. Maybe it's to bulk up. Maybe it's to improve some form of bodily function. But we understand that exercise is about producing results. And that's what this word is talking about. And though Paul doesn't get into the details of uh, specifically why there can be joy in working out, throughout Scripture you you can find that. For instance, if you go back to Luke chapter 6, Jesus says that we can find joy in spiritual exercise because it makes us more like him. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained. That's exercise terminology. Everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. There can be joy in exercise, spiritually speaking, because it makes us more like Jesus. Not only that, we can go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 in a passage that's that's familiar to you, verses 16 and 17, where we're told that that the Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And hear this, for training, exercise terminology, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's joy to be found in spiritual exercise, because it equips us to be effective, effective workers, effective kingdom workers. And finally, if you go to um, what is it? First Timothy chapter four, verses seven and eight. In First Timothy chapter four, verses seven and eight, Paul talks again about training, and he says that uh, he instructs Timothy to train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And implicit within that statement about exercise, what Paul is saying is, is that there can be joy in exercise because it has eternal rewards attached to it. So today, we're going to focus in on this idea Of exercise spiritual exercise because Paul has called on us to work out our salvation and because if we look throughout Scripture we see there are benefits to such spiritual exercise but what ultimately are the implications of this working out instruction or to say it another way what does it mean to work out well bear with me I've got five things today in regards to what it means to work out. One, working out means doing. It's important to notice here that this instruction about working out indicates that there is some level of activity going on. It's also important to notice what Paul's not saying. Paul did not say work for your salvation. He did not say work at your salvation. He did not say work towards your salvation. He simply said work out your salvation? See, we need to understand here, as Paul is instructing us to work out our salvation, we need to remember who he's writing to. Back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, he identified his audience as the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The fact that he's writing to to saints means that he's writing to people who have already received salvation. So this is not an advocacy for works righteousness here. He's writing to baptized believers, not unbelievers. He's not trying to tell people how to receive salvation. He's trying to tell people who have received salvation what their responsibility is moving forward. And that responsibility is to work out their salvation. So Paul's trying to communicate in his own way the relationship between faith and works now we talked about this last sunday night in the minister's bible study and Mingu wrote a great article on it for this bulletin so i'm not trying to belabor the point but we need to understand that though we're not saved by what we do we are saved to be doing some things the correct response of someone who has received salvation to that gift of salvation is to do some things in fact That's the very reason that James said in James chapter 2 and verse 22 that faith is completed by works. Because when you understand what's been done for you, when you accept that, when you grasp that, when you realize that, it makes you want to do something in return. Think about it. When you receive a gift from somebody, what is the correct response what, what is the uh, um, appropriate way to express your gratitude? Thank you notes, right? I'm horrible at thank you notes. I don't know that I completed all of my thank you notes for my high school graduation gifts. I might need to get around to that someday. But thank you notes. We, we, we have a, an understanding in our culture and our society That when you receive something, the correct response is to send out a thank you note at the very minimal. What is the bare minimum response to receiving that which saves you for all eternity? Would it not be to spend the rest of your eternity doing things that bring glory to the one who saved you? See, we need to understand that working out means doing Not sitting, not being inactive. We need to understand that there's this aspect of our life that expects us to respond to the salvation we've received by doing everything we can to bring glory to God. The problem, I think, is that a great many of us have accepted not doing. And here's the problem. When you're not doing, you're atrophying. Now, you probably know what atrophy is. The simplest definition I can come up with, atrophy, atrophy is a gradual decline in effectiveness or vigor due to underuse or neglect. And far too many Christians are okay with atrophy, spiritually speaking. Pictured on the screen is an aqueduct I know I've talked about before in previous sermons. It's the aqueduct in Segovia, Spain. It was built by the Romans towards the end of the first century. This thing, at least the elevated portion of this aqueduct, measures 2,388 feet in length and 93 and a half feet in height. It consists of approximately 24,000 granite blocks fit together to make 165 arches. The thing that amazes me about this aqueduct is that it was in constant use delivering water from a nearby river to the city of Segovia, Spain, up until the 20th century. That's a long, long time, from the 1st century to the 20th century. But in the 20th century, some city leaders decided that the aqueduct should be preserved. And so modern pipes were installed to bring the drinking water to the town from the river. And they allowed the aqueduct to rest as a treasured monument. And then something unexpected happened. The aqueduct began to deteriorate. Apparently, the absence of water flowing over it allowed the sun to dry out the rocks in the mortar that were used to hold it together, and it started to crumble. The aqueduct of Segovia is now listed on World Monuments Fund as a monument to watch because of its deteriorating state. Ultimately, the lack of use brought about the aqueduct's demise. And the same thing can go for you and I, spiritually speaking. If we're not doing, if we're not actively engaged in the expression of our faith and in the uh, exercise of our faith, the same thing can happen. We can atrophy spiritually. And the reason Scripture expects us to exercise is because a failure to exercise our faith will result in such atrophy. That's the point that James is making in James chapter 2 and verse 26. Faith without works is dead. Isn't atrophy a synonym for death to some degree? So when it comes to working out your salvation, the implication is that you're doing, not sitting, Not passive, but actively doing. But you know what? It also means something else. Working out also means training. Now here in Philippians chapter 2, did you notice the importance that Paul places on obedience? Just look at verse 12 for a moment. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed he's calling back to the fact that they have been obedient disciples for such a long time they have focused on doing what they know they're supposed to do they've been keeping the commandments as christ said is the demonstration of how is the way which you show you love him as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation in other words You've obeyed for so long, keep it going, continue your obedience. Obedience is a big deal here in the mind of Paul. He reminded them of their consistent obedience and called on them to continue it. Because obedience is the means by which we avoid spiritual disqualification. See, the Bible doesn't teach once saved, always saved. The Bible prevents, presents salvation as something you not only receive, but something you must maintain. And the way we maintain our salvation is through training ourselves in obedience. Think about it. Animals learn obedience by being trained. Your dog at your house might learn to do some tricks or might learn some specific behaviors that are appropriate in your home because you've trained them. Incredibly large animals, like elephants, can be trained to do certain activities at a zoo for the purpose of their physical exams. And as we know, for, for decades they were utilized in, in circuses and things like that because you could train such a massive animal. Obedience can be learned through training. Do you realize there's a lot of training mentioned in Scripture? I listed three verses earlier at the start of the sermon. But I want to call your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for just a moment. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, between verses 24 through 27, that, that Paul talks about the importance of training. And he used an athletic metaphor. In fact, It's quite possible that Paul was aware of the original Olympics. That having traveled in Greece such as he had, and with the abundance of athletic metaphors that he uses in Scripture, he's probably familiar with the original Olympic Games. Pictured on the screen is a facility that was used for the first modern Olympics that took place in Athens in 1896. But Paul probably knew something about the Olympics or the other Olympics Games that took place in Greece at that time period. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we, we, get, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Here, Paul acknowledges the possibility of, of disqualification. And he does so in the context of a metaphor that's comparing a race to the Christian life. And he says here's how you avoid disqualification. You've got to go into training. History tells us that in the original Olympic Games, participants, athletes who competed in those games were required to do 10 months of strict training before they entered the Games or else they would be disqualified. Paul may be referencing that fact. And Paul does not want Christians to be disqualified from the spiritual race. So he instructs us to run in such a way that we may obtain the prize. And and that means that, like him, we must discipline ourselves, keep ourselves under control, that we must train ourselves in obedience in order to avoid being disqualified. I think it's important here to note that there's a big difference between training and trying. Trying to do something refers to our efforts to do something we've never done before, but with no particular outcome in mind and no particular effort or preparation made to succeed. Training refers to our efforts to prepare ourselves to do something at which we intend to succeed. So you can try to run a marathon, or you can train yourself to run a marathon. Trying to run a mar- marathon is an unprepared attempt to complete that 26.2-mile run without the expectation of succeeding. Training to run a marathon is a systematic process of mentally and physically preparing to successfully complete the 26.2-mile run. Now, put that in the context of your spiritual life. Are you trying to get to heaven? Or are you training yourself? to get to heaven because there is a big difference between the two. And what Paul's trying to communicate to us is that without proper training, without the exercise involved, we're going to be disqualified. If we want to receive that crown of righteousness, it's going to take some training, not some trying. So are you training yourself for that reward? Because working out means training. And working out means trusting. Notice this in verse 13 of Philippians chapter 2. After Paul has called on Christians to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. did you see that God's involved in the equation you're not alone on this whole exercise routine it's as if Paul is saying that God is your personal trainer to some degree sometimes I think we forget that God is not just our sovereign Lord reigning from heaven but that God is our ally who's on our side trying to help us succeed I mean just think of some of the descriptions of the Godhead in Scripture you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 and it indicates that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability and that he will also provide a way of escape when you face temptation. That's an ally. That's somebody who wants to help you succeed. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, we're told that, that God, via his grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, teaches us to renounce what is not right, That's an ally. That's somebody who wants to help you succeed. Think about how Jesus is described in Scripture. He's referred to as our sympathizing high priest in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. He's identified as someone who understands what it's like to be us. Someone who's endured temptation like us. Someone who can sympathize with our experience. And then in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, Jesus is referred to as our advocate using legal terminology. He is our defense attorney, the one who's going to come to our defense in the presence of the judge. He's our ally. He's on our side. He wants to help us succeed. And then there's the Holy Spirit who's identified as our helper and comforter in John chapter 14. And we're told in Galatians chapter 5 that he will lead us so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh if we so let him. You see, God is on our side. We're not in this whole working out situation by ourselves. We need to trust in God's ability to help us. And when I think about such trust, I think about a belayer in rock climbing. Now I have it done much in the way of rappelling and rock climbing in my life, but I've done it enough to know it's dangers. And the thing about a belayer, a belayer is the guy who your rope is attached to when you're climbing the wall or descending the wall. He's there just to keep you from hitting the ground. That's his only job. The rope goes through these mechanisms around his waist, and he's holding onto the rope with his hands, and as you ascend or descend, he's guiding it so that if you slip or you fall, he can stop you from hitting the ground. He's there to assist you. He's there to protect you. He's there to help you. When I think about what Scripture says about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it describes the Godhead as our ally, as our assistant in managing this life and in working out our salvation. We are not left to it on our own. And we need to trust God to help us succeed. Far too many Christians say, well, I I can't grow. I I can't work out. I can't exercise. I can't do this. I can't do that. Why is the word can't even in a Christian's vocabulary? We're going to get to that in Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things. Through who? Christ who strengthens me. An ally statement. When are we going to accept that we have help? That's why the first thing we should do anytime time we encounter difficulty or a problem is go to God. In fact, you know what? When I prepared this virtual prayer night for tonight, I was ashamed. Because why hadn't I done a COVID-19 prayer night earlier? Why are we, what are, March, April, May, June, July, I, I didn't study math in college, by the way, six months into this thing, basically, And haven't set aside a night to pray about it. Because sometimes we forget we have an ally. Sometimes we adopt a mindset that God's up there, he's left it to us, we've got to do it on our own. But that's not how God's depicted in Scripture. We need, in working out our salvation, that means we've got to work out the spiritual muscles, muscles of faith. Of trusting God, much like Abraham had to exercise during his sojourn. So working out means trusting, and working out also means eliminating. You know, everybody knows that if you're going to have good health, the first thing you have to do is there's some things you got to stop. Physically speaking, if you're trying to improve your health, you might have to stop eating certain foods. You might have to stop in, uh, uh, some personal habits that are not healthy. You might have to, to, to stop being involved in certain things that produce stress. You might have to make some difficult life choices because you have to eliminate something. It's the same thing here in these instructions about exercise, about working out our salvation, because immediately after talking about that, you can look at verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's an elimination instruction. Think about the primary problem happening in Philippi. I've mentioned it a couple times in this series. If you go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, you find out there's two women there, Euodia and Syntyche, who are having a dispute. They have some sort of disagreement. We don't know what kind of disagreement it is. We assume it's not doctrinal or else Paul would have corrected somebody in that matter. It appears then to be something interpersonal. And here Paul takes a moment, before he ever gets around to addressing that problem, he takes a moment to tell these two individuals to stop complaining, to stop grumbling, to stop disputing. And not just these two individuals, but the entire congregation. But surely we don't have that problem at Buford, right? That was a Philippi problem. Complaining, that's just a Philippi problem. That's not a Buford problem. We don't ever have issues with complaining and grumbling and disputing. Some of you are sitting in that pew right now looking at your watch, complaining to yourself in your own head right now. This is an ongoing problem in the church. And the problem is that we let it continue far too often. God, speaking through Paul here, said, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, I know I can do some things without grumbling, but why is it necessary for me to do everything without complaining? Well, let me tell you, the reason we're told to do this is because grumbling and complaining are an offense to God. And let me explain what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in the first 10 verses there, Paul says that the Israelites serve as an example of what not to do. And he specifies some of their their evils that we should not emulate. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and complaining. Yes, he specifically mentions complaining. Complaining on par with idolatry and sexual immorality, yes, in God's eyes, that's how it works. If you go back to the Israelite story, you go back to the Exodus, you go back to chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, you encounter these notorious complainers. They're in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, they're complaining about their food situation. Do you realize there are less than two chapters since they crossed the Red Sea? They're they're just mere verses from this occasion where the water was bitter and God utilized wood to make it sweet. And they're already complaining. And we're told in Exodus chapter 16, and particularly verses 6 and 7, This was Moses and Aaron's response to their complaining. They said, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Moses and Aaron make it clear that our complaints, we may think they're directed at somebody else or directed at a situation, but ultimately they're going back to God. And here's why the majority of our complaints, like the majority of the Israelites' complaints, are due to discontentment. In other words, our complaints demonstrate a lack of gratitude toward God, and that doesn't sit well with Him. See, if you jump over in the story of the Exodus to the book of Numbers, they complain again, Numbers chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, because they were tired of eating the same old thing. See, that first story Exodus 16, that's where the manna comes into play. They got tired of eating manna. We need a more, more diverse diet. We need some golden corral up in here is what they're thinking. Nobody needs golden corral. <laughs> that's just trouble. And so before this whole quail comes in, situation comes into the equation, they're complaining. And we're told in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 10 that the anger Of the Lord blazed hotly against them here's the point complaining grumbling disputing like this it angers God see when God delivers a person from a life of slavery whether it's the Israelites in their bondage in Egypt or or us being delivered from sin when God delivers somebody from a life of slavery and blesses them with a life of freedom And then they turn around and start complaining, that offends him. Because he's given them what they don't deserve and what they couldn't attain on their own, and now they're whining over insignificant things. That angers him. So Paul says if you want to get in good spiritual shape, here is what you've got to do you've got to eliminate the complaining, the murmuring, the disputing, you've got to stop the complaining. But on top of that, you've also got to shine. Because working out also means shining. You'll notice there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that after the no complaining instruction in verse 14, Paul goes on to say, "...that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom... You shine as lights in the world. I think this is Paul's way of reminding the church that those outside the church are watching. And in the case of the church in Philippi, this ongoing dispute between the Euodia and Syntyche is not making Christ's church look good. The church in Philippi is failing to shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted world, and so Paul reminds them that Jesus had called them to be lights to the world. You remember that, right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When Jesus presented this Light of the world metaphor. He said that no one would cover up a lamp because that would make it useless. And so Jesus' point that we really need to take away from this, this statement is that when light's not visible, it's useless. What does what does visibility necessitate? If we're going to be lights to the world and we're not visible, then we're useless. So what does visibility necessitate? Number one, visibility necessitates clarity. Light is only visible if it stands out. It has to be distinct. It has to be clear. It has to be unobstructed in order for people to see it. Light is only useful When it's bright, unobstructed, evident. That's why when you're in a dark room, you can light the smallest candle, and it's going to help you see so much. See, the implication we need to take from that fact is that in order for us to work out our salvation— We've got to have a distinctive shine about us. I did that whole series last year on the book of 1 Peter. You may recall we called it Strange. And back in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verses 1-4, through four, Peter instructed Christians to stop doing the will of the Gentiles, start doing the will of God, and said that when you, make, when you make that change, the world will think it strange that you do not run with them and they will speak evil of you. That, word, that phrase, run with them, literally is a Greek word that refers to a group of people who run to one location and gather together. And so what Peter was trying to communicate is that the world should think it's strange that you don't participate with them, that you don't do the things that they do, that you don't gather with them or act like them, that you don't run to where they're going. And so what Peter's whole point is, is that we have to be willing to be different, we have to be willing to be distinct, we have to be willing to stand out. That's what light implies. In order for light to be visible, it has to have clarity. It has to be distinct and visible. That was redundant. But not only that, light also has to be in contact with those it's helping. A light that is inaccessible to you is not useful. Think about it this way. Stars were used for years for navigation. But what good are the stars on a cloudy night? You see, light has to be accessible in order for it to be usable. Now think about that in context of our Shining in order for us to fulfill our role as the light of the world, we have to be intentional about coming in contact with lost people. It's very easy for us to choose to kind of cocoon ourselves together, to to kind of uh, um, um, protect ourselves and just stick with our own and not really worry about the world out there, instead to just worry about keeping ourselves safe. That seems like a good tactic, doesn't it? What if we just all moved to a a location and we just set up shop there and and, and we separated ourselves from everything that's worldly? Wouldn't that be great? To a degree, yes, but it would also infringe upon our ability to fulfill the Great Commission. Because you go to Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, and we're told to go. The very first word in the Great Commission is go. Get out of here. In fact, the word that's used there in the common language of the day referred to the conclusion of a conversation and meant, hey, it's time for you to move. It's time to, this conversation is over. It's time to, you got to go. Time to move on. Jesus began the Great Commission with a word that reminded the disciples that their mission required them to have contact with other people. So in order for you and I to fulfill our roles as a light, in order for you and I to correctly shine, we have to spend time with lost people. We have to target lost people. We have to develop relationships with lost people because we're never going to reach the lost if we colonize ourselves and just spend time with the righteous. So shining requires contact. Here's the point of of talking about the light of the world passage. If your light isn't visible to the world, then you're not shining. And that's a problem because it's an indicator that you're not working out. See, we come to Philippians chapter 2 in this passage, and we have these workout instructions. God obviously expects us to exercise our faith, not just internalize our faith. And you know what? I don't think the biggest problem among Christians today is that they're going to renounce their faith at some point. I think the greatest problem facing Christianity today is that so many Christians settle for a flabby, out-of-shape version of faith. And Maybe that's you today. Maybe as you examine your own relationship with God, you realize that it's not in shape. You know, the first step in getting in shape is acknowledging you're out of shape, right? Because until you can admit that you're not in shape, you'll never do anything about it. So maybe today that's where you need to begin. And for some of you, that might mean you need to make a decision to put on Christ in baptism. That might mean that you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, and you might need to repent of your sins and surrender to His will by being baptized for the remission of your sins. For others of you, that might mean that you need to take up the challenge of a new exercise routine. Maybe for some of you, It means you need the prayers of your teammates to help you make the changes that are necessary. Whatever your need is today, the goal is for all of us to acknowledge that we need to be working out. It may be different for you than it is for me. The the routine, the exercise you need to do may be different than what I need, but we all need to be working out because we know that such training has eternal rewards. If you have any need to respond to the invitation today, we encourage you to do so while well, together we stand and sing. As thy affection in the hills the shawls, is thy heart right with God? Dost thou count all things for Jesus but lost? Is thy heart right with God? in the ransom princes-